DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Dr. Lillis is also the author of Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, a theological contemplation of prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, entitled The Last Retreat, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We continue our conversation on the last retreat, day 14. In the very next paragraph, Elizabeth is going to offer us a reflection that we can really take into our prayer then both before and after we receive our next Holy Communion. She's going to talk about the Father's will as the food of Jesus' heart. If that's true, then when we receive Holy Communion, that communion is food for us insofar as we're open and disposed to the Father's will. You know, if we receive communion, in other words, compartmentalize, if we receive communion because we want God's help to bring our own plans and ambitions to come to pass, whether it's a spiritual experience that we're after or else some earthly thing, some advantage for our children that we're asking for. or And so we go to communion, you know, with that kind of, oh, static in our hearts, we're not really letting the Lord feed us. This next paragraph is about an attitude of soul that allows the Lord to feed us so that we can enter into this mystery in a more integrated way, so that when we go to communion, we're preparing ourselves to receive the Father's will long after Mass is done. And long after Mass is done, we're preparing ourselves to receive Holy Communion in a way that will deepen us in the Father's will long after the present moment has passed. The Master was truth itself in this first oblation. His life was, as it were, but the consequence of it. My food, he liked to say, is to do the will of him who sent me. It should also be that of the bride and, at the same time, the sword that immolates her. If it is possible, let this cup pass me by, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then she will joyfully go in peace to every sacrifice with her master, rejoicing to have been known by the Father since he crucifies her with his Son. Your decrees are my inheritance forever, they are the joy of my heart. My master sang this in his soul, and it should echo resoundingly in that of the bride. It is by her constant fidelity to these decrees, whether exterior or interior, that she will bear witness to the truth and will be able to say, He who sent me has not left me alone. He is always with me because I do always the things that are pleasing to him. 
and by never leaving him, by remaining in closest contact with him, she will radiate this secret power which saves and delivers souls. Stripped and set free of self and all else, she can follow the master to the mountain to pray there with him in her soul, a prayer of God. Then, still through the divine adorer, he who is the great praise of glory to the Father, she will ceaselessly offer a sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of lips praising his name. And as the psalmist sings, she will praise him in the expansion of his power and for the immensity of his grandeur. I believe if we take this passage that I've just read and pray it when we receive Holy Communion, this passage is full of Eucharistic allusions. She quotes Jesus as speaking about my food and the context of this, the first oblation, the idea the night before he died, he offered the bread and wine, signs of, of a covenant, signs of the sacrifice he was about to offer. And that's the offering he made of himself reveals what this food, how it nourishes us and what it prepares us for. At the same time, this will, this food, is also what allows us to make an offering of ourselves to him. The cup that we take allows us to be pleasing to the Father as the Lord is pleasing to the Father. It allows us to make a great sacrifice of love. You know, love that doesn't cost us anything, love that is easy, love that doesn't involve a sacrifice. It's not really love. A beautiful love, a love worthy of our humanity, a love worthy of God. This is a love that lays itself down. It's a love that goes all the way. And when we receive communion, that's the love that Jesus is nourishing us with. And that's the purpose that he nourishes us for. He wants us to love all the way, to give without counting the cost. To pray like that, to enter into that kind of love, that is to enter into the heart of Jesus, into the heart of his prayer. That's to go with him on the mountain. That's to adore the Father with him. That's to enter into that most intimate and beautiful relationship and to become part of it and to let it expand and define our existence and raise our existence on high. It almost feels that as she's bringing us into this mystery that we are being brought into the passion that this is an experience of, yes, the food and the, and the reason why he gave himself up, but we're being called to, in a very, very deep way, to become the passion itself, aren't we? That is very true. That's what this final section is in this for this day. She takes us right up to the mystery of the cross. This mystery is so important because our access to the Father is always through the cross. If we want our prayers to be heard, if we want our prayers to transform the world, we must never be afraid of the cross, but we must let love draw us there. And this is exactly where she invites us to go. 
and she invites us to let love draw us there by silence. Isn't it interesting, Chris, after our last reflections, you were drawn into silence. And it's into silence that she begins this next section. Then, when her hour of humiliation, of annihilation comes, she will recall this little phrase, Jesus autum tachebat, and she will be silent, keeping all her strength for the Lord, this strength which we draw from silence. And when the hour of abandonment, of desertion, and of anguish comes, the hour that drew from Christ this loud cry, Why have you abandoned me? She will recall this prayer, that they may have in themselves the fullness of my joy, and drinking to the dregs the cup prepared by the Father, she will find a divine sweetness in its bitterness. Finally, after having said so often, I am thirsty, thirsty to possess you in glory, she will sing, everything is consummated, into your hands I commend my spirit, and the Father will come for her to bring her into his inheritance, where in the light she will see light. Know that the Lord has marvelously glorified his Holy One, David saying, yes, the Holy One of God will have been glorified in this soul, for he will have destroyed everything there to clothe it with himself, and it will have lived in reality the words of the precursor, he must increase and I must decrease. And so, as your words and your reflection, Chris, brought us into the silence, it's silence that a soul finds strength. One pastoral thing in order to find the silence, I think after Mass and after you've received communion, taking a few moments to give a thanksgiving to the Lord in silence, not rattling off a, a whole bunch of different prayers, if you're distracted, that's one thing, but, but it's such a holy and sacred place to be once we've received Holy Communion. And the prayer of Jesus is echoing in our hearts, his adoration of the Father. The whole movement of adoration is to bow one's being before the presence of God and be silent before the wonders and the astonishing greatness of who he is the exquisite subtlety of his love unfolding all around us, the only proper response to that overwhelming presence of God, especially right after we received communion, is to be silent before it and to accept it. This silence is not something that is interrupted by great suffering, by interior or exterior trials. The silence becomes deeper and deeper the more we are afflicted, the more the trials the Father 
allows us to experience unfold and seem to triumph over us, this silence can carry our hearts deeper and deeper. First, the silence, the silence begins with what seems to be the silence of God. As we enter into the silence, God seems to be a silent and we feel abandoned. And just like Jesus prayed, why have you abandoned me? We will feel that in our hearts. We will feel abandoned in our life of faith if we are following our crucified master. At the same time we're doing that, though, with Christ, we are also aware there is not one moment of suffering that is ever wasted. God uses every moment that we love for something beautiful allowed us to experience the seeming absence of his presence and love, allowed us to enter into the silence where there seems to be nothing there. And the answer, Elizabeth says, that they may have in themselves the fullness of my joy. Somehow when we surrender to those crucifying movements, to those moments when God's presence seems to have utterly forsaken us, and we can't make sense out of what's going on around us. If we choose, like Jesus, to believe in the Father's love in that moment, that is our finest moment. That is the moment when the joy of the Father is communicated through what we're enduring into the hearts of others. This is how we gain access how the Father gains access into the world, into very broken and very difficult situations. He's able to enter into those broken, sorrowful situations because we're willing to say yes like his son. We're willing to say yes to the silence of his love, his love that suffers misery for our sake. And she will find divine sweetness in its bitterness. The next phrase, I'm thirsty, that she comments on uh, deserves attention because the Addison's disease, you even having water on your lips causes the lips to burn as at the stage. It's a secondary kind of suffering, a little bit like shingles, I think. And so you're dehydrated and you're hungry and your body's racked in pain, and you thirst. You thirst greatly. And so she's identifying her physical thirst with the words of Jesus, who from the cross says, I am thirsty. Teresa of Calcutta, she, next to the crucifix in all the chapels where she had missionaries of charity, and she herself thought about how Jesus' thirst, how Jesus thirsts for souls. And I think this is something powerful that has happened in the suffering of Blessed Elizabeth. She feels physical thirst, but she identifies that suffering physical thirst with the spiritual thirst of Jesus. Jesus who is thirsty for souls, for souls to know the love of the Father. Thirsty to possess you in glory. She will sing, everything is consummated and into your hands I commend my spirit. And the Father will come for her 
to bring her into his inheritance, where in the light she will see light. These cries, these loud cries, why have you abandoned me? I am thirsty. These are cries of a heart that is crucified and completely united to Christ Jesus. It's a powerful and sacred, sacred place to be. It's a place that God has called each one of us to go because when we enter into that place, he can be fruitful for us in unimaginable proportions. In astonishing and subtle and exquisite ways, he can accomplish his will. He can make his joy, his love known in the world. And this is what it means to glorify God, to let his love and his joy be made known. As we enter into this, this sacred silence where there's nothing more for us to say, a silence that where God seems to abandon us, a silence where we thirst and we yearn for his will to be made known in us and through us. The silence of death where everything we are meets its limit. It's at that point where everything we are meets its limit that we are surrendered into, we are ushered into the limitlessness of the love of God. And the words of St. John that she ends with this day, he must increase, I must decrease, take on a whole new meaning for a contemplative soul that has ached with this silence, that has embraced it in love. It is good to yearn for this silence, the fruitful silence which allowed Christ Jesus to bring forth the church. It's the fruitful silence that if we embrace will bring salvation and life to many. Anthony, we've talked about the struggles that the culture presents before us and even the, the struggles we have within ourselves to suffer silence. I, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, I could go for a walk around the lake at any given time and be able just to try to be in quiet, and yet all around are people with devices that are blaring music or there's companions with constant chatter. I mean, it's rare that you find anyone who could just take a walk in silence anymore, let alone try to find it somewhere. It's a very sad state, isn't it? I'm not trying to be such a downer, but it, it, it's a probably a suffering we just can't handle more than anything else is that of silence. It's true. Uh, in our culture, we need to make eff extra efforts to create places of silence. You know, isn't it interesting? Here we are in the United States of America, the most affluent nation on earth, the one uh, luxury that we are all deprived of more than any other is this deep, loving silence. We don't have places where we can go and drink from it. We don't have it valued in our society. People aren't respectful of it. Even in hospitals and so forth, TVs are blaring, even as somebody's approaching the very last and sacred moment of their life. So what are we going to do? Well, we can 
we can get down about it and beat ourselves up over it or criticize everything. But really, this silence that we're talking about, it's not something that is remote or impossible to find. This silence is just a decision away. This silence is just a prayer away. And all we need to do is to begin to ask for it. And the Father will bless us with it in ways we can't possibly even begin to hope or imagine in unfathomable ways, in inexhaustible ways, in new ways. The Father yearns to astonish us with this fruitful, silent love. As we experience it, you will be surprised. You will find ways to make little corners in your home, corners of sacred silence where you can go pray or in your workplace. And you can even find places of silence on a busy street or in front of a noisy neighbor. There are places of silence waiting us for us all the time. And the Father yearns to give them to us. And all we need to do is ask. Any final thoughts on this portion of the retreat, Anthony? This reflection uh, that we just went through, I, it's so, such a powerful, powerful moment that she's brought us into. We're going to see in her next reflection, she takes us even deeper. So I encourage those of you who are going through this retreat with us to read through the 14th day again and let it wash over you and let it draw you into, into the sacred silence that the Father wills for you to know. And realize that when you're there and as you breathe that silence in and you, as you let that silence inform your prayer and become your prayer, there are deeper and more richer and more beautiful things the Father is waiting to give you. That this is just a threshold to something magnificent. God has chosen us in Him before the creation of the world that we might be holy and immaculate in His presence in love. We have been predestined by the decree of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we may be the praise of His glory. But how do we respond to the dignity of this vocation? This is the secret. Christ is my life. I live, no longer I, but Christ lives in me. We must be transformed into Jesus Christ. Again, it is St. Paul who teaches me this. Those whom God has foreknown, he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. It is important, then, that I study this divine model so as to identify myself so closely with him that I may unceasingly reveal him to the eyes of the Father. First of all, what did he say when he came into the world? Here I am, O God, I come to do your will. I think that this prayer should be like the bride's heartbeat. Here we are, O Father, we come to do your will. The Master was truth itself in this first oblation. 
His life was, as it were, but the consequence of it. My food, he liked to say, is to do the will of him who sent me. It should also be that of the bride, and at the same time the sword that immolates her. If it is possible, let this cup pass me by, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then she will joyfully go in peace to every sacrifice with her master, rejoicing to have been known by the Father since he crucifies her with his Son. Your decrees are my inheritance forever. They are the joy of my heart. My master sang this in his soul, and it should echo resoundingly in that of the bride. It is by her constant fidelity to these decrees, whether exterior or interior, that she will bear witness to the truth and will be able to say, He who sent me has not left me alone. He is always with me, because I do always the things that are pleasing to him. And by never leaving him, by remaining in closest contact with him, she will radiate this secret power which saves and delivers souls. Stripped and set free of self and all else, she can follow the Master to the mountain to pray there with him in her soul, a prayer of God. Then, still through the Divine Adorer, he who is the great praise of glory to the Father, she will ceaselessly offer a sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of lips praising his name. And as the psalmist sings, she will praise him in the expansion of his power and for the immensity of his grandeur. Then, when her hour of humiliation, of annihilation comes, she will recall this little phrase, Jesus autum tachebat, and she will be silent, keeping all her strength for the Lord, this strength which we draw from silence. And when the hour of abandonment, of desertion, and of anguish comes, the hour that drew from Christ this loud cry, Why have you abandoned me? She will recall this prayer that they may have in themselves the fullness of my joy. And drinking to the dregs the cup prepared by the Father, she will find a divine sweetness in its bitterness. Finally, after having said so often, I am thirsty, thirsty to possess you in glory, she will sing, everything is consummated. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And the Father will come for her to bring her into his inheritance, where, in the light, she will see light. Know that the Lord has marvelously glorified his Holy One, David saying, Yes, the Holy One of God will have been glorified in this soul, for he will have destroyed everything there to clothe it with himself, and it will have lived in reality the words of the precursor. He must increase, and I must decrease.
You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this program along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.